0: on Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philly get together to talk about all things movies. I guess that implied by the uh, it being a movie podcast. I suppose that's a little redundant but I am here uh joined once again by my uh, lovely co-host Connor and Sam and we're excited to be ta- oh wait a minute wait a minute wait okay who's this this is someone is uh skulking and sneaking uh climbing aboard our sailing vessel here who is this
2: it's Christine oh it's Christine she's back. Christine it's Christine Christine rayburn
1: <laughs> might as well say it one more time just so you're sure you know who you are
2: Christine, <laughs> hey, Christine. <laughs> Welcome
1: back. Excellent. And we're all thrilled to have Christine uh, back uh, aboard the podcast as we uh, set sail on this uh, this interesting installment of our recent theme, which is, uh, I suppose, movies that we've seen multiple times, movies we've rewatched multiple times, or that have brought us back to the theater to uh, see a second time, uh, if not a third or fourth, and so on. Uh we've covered a lot of movies already that fall under that category for me, uh especially Fury Road, uh, since that's uh, that was a solid seven times. This one didn't see quite that many times, but I'm excited to talk about. Uh before we get to that though, just want to go around and see how everybody's doing, what everyone's been up to, and uh what everybody's been watching. So what's uh what's new, gang? I don't think
0: I've really been watching anything new, but I've been feeling nostalgic for the podcast because about four years ago, we started recording and we recorded our very first episode in Christine's apartment in Philadelphia. So I've been feeling a bit nostalgic thinking about our uh, first picks. I picked Dread as my first movie for Under underappreciated. So not really anything new, but just reflecting on four years of recording Butter With That and just how much I love you guys.
3: Oh, that's so sweet. I can't believe it's been four years. Did you ever think that we would? do episodes for this long
0: i hoped it but i i didn't i don't who knew what the future hold but no I'm, I'm thrilled that we're still doing this four years later
3: yeah me too um i watched the gray man it's on netflix it's the new russo brothers movie with chris evans and ryan gosling i think billy bob thornton's in it and a, uh, a couple of other people too um honestly i the russo brothers know how to make a winter soldier movie I-, I swear to god that this must have been like a rejected uh captain america script because it, w- it was just winter soldier again i wish they had like a little bit less money so uh that, like explosions and things weren't as over the top uh but you know i enjoyed it and it's chris evans like please i would love it no matter what
2: Um, so two nights ago I watched the movie prey, which I had no, I have never seen a predator movie. So when I was told, Oh, this is like a predator prequel. I had no context to really understand what that means. Um, And I really enjoyed it a lot. And I think that a, a marker or a mark of its effectiveness as a movie is the fact that I came into it having no context about what Predator is as a character. And through the movie could piece together like the elements of this very iconic character. And but then I come to understand it's a very kind of, new, well, in a way, a new take and just positioning it within like early 1700s, um, like the main character is from the Comanche tribe and is basically con- confronting like colonialism, like French colonialism. And so it like really ra- like plays with this idea of dominance, predator, prey within like sort of a, a colonial and imperialist framework, which was really interesting. And the the lead was so good, some great action sequences, and it shot beautifully. So big recommend.
3: What is Predator? Is it an alien?
1: <laughs> Wait, Sam, have you never seen any of these either? Uh-uh. What? Oh.
2: <laughs> what? That's wow. the thing. Sam, just watch the movie. And... It'll, it'll answer questions, and then maybe you, you're intrigued to watch the rest. I'm still not. <laughs> oh. But I really enjoyed the movie. Sam, you I have to see the first one.
3: That you'll like this movie a lot. Okay, I'm willing to give it a shot.
1: Yeah, you're both in a very unique position to uh, start off in terms of the history of this franchise, uh, chronologically speaking, uh, at the beginning, so... Might be cool to see you uh, take on other ones. I would definitely absolutely recommend uh, the original Predator. It's pretty fantastic. But I did also really, really like Prey as a fan of the franchise, uh, however flawed it might be after the first.
3: But is it an alien? Do you really want to know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's an alien. Okay, great. Right. Well, from uh, from Aliens uh, in the... Well, I forget what year the first one's in. Seems like it's some sort of like South American invasion or something to that effect or like military i don't know uh the first one takes place in 17 uh 1719 as established newly through prey so that's cool but we're gonna be jumping ahead in time instead we're gonna go to the uh late 1940s and early 1950s uh for what a graceful transition jesus Whoop! it's been too hot it's been too hot in philly i'm sorry everybody we're going to uh to the 1940s and 50s to have a look uh back in time with a uh, movie that I've seen multiple times, a movie that I saw multiple times in theaters and have watched many times since. Glad to have my DVD back now. Uh, you may have heard on the show that somebody was borrowing it for a long time. Uh, and then someone else
0: borrowed it, and I got it back the next day, so that was nice. Uh, all right, all right, all right. I, I, gotta, <laughs> I, I, got some, I got a score to settle. Yes, Dave, I did have your DVD for approximately three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, You gave it to me when we were still recording in your room. Yeah. So it's been quite a while. But Sam didn't have the time pressure to watch it in one day. That's true. That's true. So I just want to, I just got to put that out there to the world. I don't know if that's (laughs) fair, but I got to defend myself. Just a minute. Fair enough. Fair enough.
3: Justice for me, I would have watched it (laughs) anyway. Don't throw me under the bus like that.
1: (laughs) Well, now we've all watched it. Uh, We're talking about a 2012 P.T. Anderson film called The Master. uh, That's starring Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, uh, Remy, Rami Malik, and uh, others. It's kind of a little interesting surprise, uh, surprise role for him. It is, uh, in shorthand, I suppose, uh, the story of Freddie Quell, who is a returning World War II veteran, coming back from the Pacific theater of uh, World War II, returning to the country, obviously, with uh, quite a few issues, a uh, very troubled person who sort of lives uh, the life of a drifter, until climbing aboard the sailing vessel of the charismatic and enigmatic leader of a pseudo-psychological, pseudo-spiritual cultish movement called The Cause, uh, led by Lancaster Dodd, who is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, The film examines the tensions and growth of their relationship dynamic uh, as it stands at odds with the cause that Philip Seymour Hoffman is championing as the uh, spiritual leader of, kind of A meditation in a lot of ways on uh, post-World War II ennui, I suppose. A meditation on uh, relationships, a meditation on power dynamics, meditation on a whole lot of things. And it's going to be interesting to see if we can pin down exactly what this movie was getting at. Having seen it uh, many times over the course of 10 years, including several trips to the theater to check it out when it first uh, got its run, I've seen it probably in excess of 12 to 15 times, I'd guess, but uh, still not entirely sure. Although I think I might have a little bit more of a grasp on it now than I ever have. But I'm looking forward to dissecting what we think the movie was about uh, via a couple sources and via our input. But before we get to that, uh, this was Connor and Sam's first time seeing The Master, even after several years. Uh, and <laughs> we are going to going to get their takes on it and uh, then return to Christine, who I know this to be a rewatch for. So, Connor and Sam, what did you guys think of 2012's The Master?
0: Well, I'm glad I finally got around to watching your DVD today. um i i uh, this might be my favorite pt movie i've seen there will be blood for the podcast i've seen boogie nights for the podcast now the master i think out of those three that i've seen i this this one i think held my attention the most um throughout its run i love it's the you know we're gonna talk a lot about character dynamics and so i found a lot of the character dynamics really compelling i thought this movie was beautifully shot there will be blood was also beautifully shot but something about the visual language of this movie really stuck with me um, we're gonna talk a lot about its saturation i love that part of it philip seymour hoffman rest in power uh truly incredible in this movie and so yeah overall thoughts it's stuck with me i think i was like okay that's pretty good and then as it's been sticking with me i've kind of been liking it more and more and i think that's out of those three is my favorite pta movie
3: Uh, Dave, when we were talking earlier today, you had said that um, you didn't think I would hate it, but I wouldn't particularly like it. And I said, you got it right on the money. I definitely didn't hate it. And the L. Ron Hubbard of it all is absolutely fascinating. And something that I really appreciate as a a true crime aficionado is um, exploring topics like this. And, you know, as someone who thinks that they're like got a level head on their shoulders is pretty smart. Um, I'm always like, how do people get wrapped up in cults? Like, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't you just like get a feel for it and be able to back off. But this movie I think does a good job of one actively choosing to ignore some of the signs and two, being so caught up in someone showing you appreciation and full understanding that it, that, you do still fall for it, so I did really enjoy that.
1: And those some fresh takes on the movie. Uh, that being, yeah, your first viewing. So thanks so much, Christine. Uh, this is a return viewing for you. I guess uh, it's been a little while, but you were able to watch it this afternoon. How was revisiting the master?
2: Yes, yeah. So I'd seen it in theaters when it came when it came out, and I I enjoyed it. I think when I watched it, it was a really wonderful. Theater viewing, because as Connor said, I mean, it's visually stunning. And so to theater, see it in the theater setting um, really emphasized just how beautifully each frame is, or like each frame is shot, all of the, the, the whole color palette. But it, I felt like walking away when I had first seen it, it felt like a movie that was just one massive acting exercise, like you could really tell these powerful performances from both Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, but it felt like I was just watching two masterful, or so, you know, maybe pun intended, uh, actors at work, and that it felt just like an acting exercise. But re-watching it, I was kind of also still thinking about that theme of, of sort of theater and Folks have already talked about sort of power dynamics uh, within uh, within, you know, even the elements of performance and how that I think a lot of those play out in the movie as well. Um, But I found myself also thinking about the movie recently came out Nightmare Alley and aspects of hypnosis, especially in the early to mid 20th century, um, sort of man and monster, hypnotherapy, psychotherapy, and uh, all of these uh, other elements that seem to be explored in that particular sort of early 20th century period. So I enjoyed it. Uh, again, I it's not my favorite P.T. Anderson movie, but um, I think some really great performances and amazing filmmaking, just technical
1: wise nice yeah and i i tend to agree with all of that i mean some of the points that you brought up connor uh you know the technical aspects of this film was shot on uh, 65 millimeter it was the first film to uh, return to that format since uh 1996's uh kenneth branoff film hamlet so uh it was kind of a a, a format that had fallen by the wayside what a way to think about this is that uh, you can think about the size of the film you're shooting on, almost like you think of res- image resolution. The larger the negatives and the celluloid that you're shooting on, the more definition and more clarity you can achieve. Uh, the more range that you can encompass, uh, so that a really interesting texture to this film. Uh, also, uh, Connor definitely agree with the color saturation, which is pretty true of most of Anderson's work, but like particularly stunningly on display here. Things almost have like a realer than real dreamlike, like like almost touched with the exaggerated fondness of a memory feeling, uh, which I think is deeply powerful and really, really memorable. Seeing it in theaters in 70 millimeter was stunning. So I was really happy to have had the opportunity to do that when it first came out. Sam, as you mentioned, of course, the uh, L. Ron Hubbard tie-in, there are those who suggest uh, that this film is pretty strictly about uh, Scientology or pretty strictly about its founder, L. Ron Hubbard. P.T. has pushed back on this a little bit, but suggested within interviews that that was a source of inspiration coupled with other different spiritual leaders who sought uh, sought to sort of fill the vacuum of purpose and direction in a uh, post-World War environment. And there have been studies, interestingly enough, about how uh, spiritual, like more off the beaten path, grassroots spiritual causes uh, or cults do sometimes tend to emerge in the aftermath of military conflict. So that's, that's something to keep in mind as we dissect the film further. And of course, Christine, as you've touched on acting, which uh, I very much agree. This is uh, this is sort of almost uh, to a degree. It feels like a competition between its two leads, uh, Hoffman and uh, Phoenix, who are both uh, I think stunning in this movie, like spectacular work. One of my favorite of Philip Seymour Hoffman's, and he's my favorite actor. Uh, Phoenix also turns in a, a really stirring. Equally frightening and at, at times, I think, pretty sympathetic performance with a character that normally might not have uh, that audience reception. He really brings breathes life and purpose into this character. Uh, they were both nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, respectively, uh, as was Amy Adams for Best Supporting Actress. They all lost that year, which uh, I think is a bummer. Christoph Waltz won Best Supporting over Hoffman for Django Unchained. Disagree with that ruling. Philip Seymour Hoff or uh, Joaquin Phoenix wound up losing out to Daniel Day Lewis in Lincoln. Disagree with that call too. But uh, that's the Oscars, you know, whatever. Some of the things that really inspired Anderson were some works by John Huston, some really interesting post World War II documentaries where he, rather than showing any war footage, spent a lot of time really meticulously poring over the psyches of returning veterans in treatment. Uh, So that being a big element in this film as well. So with all that coming into uh, the foreground with this movie, all of those elements kind of coming together, what were the real standout takeaways? What what were scenes that you really enjoyed? What did you think didn't quite work? How do you think Anderson did leading us through this era and this journey?
3: I mean you know the the fact that pt pushed back and said that this is not strictly about l ron hubbard is like an actual laugh um because this this is dianetics this is scientology this is the if you watch a documentary on it i mean they start off on the the on the sea i can't remember what they're actually called but they're literally on a ship like relax pt it's okay um but I think that, and I think I've had, like, conversations with you, Connor, and Dave, about the initial, like, processing scene. Like, I keep coming back to that, and, and that scene in particular is one where I'm like, no, I didn't dislike this movie, because that scene was unreal.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking about that scene.
0: I think what really drew me in to the Master was spending so much time with Phoenix at the beginning of the movie. It starts off with right at the very end of the Pacific, um, the Pacific war, Uh, you see all the sailors doing sailory things, bored on an Island, uh, siphoning fuel to make his fun cocktail that comes into play throughout um, the film. And so I think I really enjoyed getting to see Phoenix's character and just how kind of stuck he is and the struggles that he deals with that, i think we're a pretty compelling journey to see him someone who's truly suffering and struggling to find acceptance find a place try to help himself ultimately to kind of end up right back where he was i think um and so i really enjoyed the setup of phoenix's character until he meets lancaster dodd uh, just kind of drunkenly wandering onto his ship
1: yeah some really nice stuff going on there um Him working as a photographer in a department store, uh, that going south, then working uh, on a cabbage farm and uh, that going south, really just sort of not able to really make anything stick. Yeah, really, uh, really rubs you in. I agree. Christine, standout moments, real big takeaways. Anything that really uh, stood out with this return viewing to this movie?
2: I guess I I, I agree both uh, with Connor and Sam of the scenes that they've already picked out. I guess another really iconic scene is when the police, the Philadelphia police, come to the house and arrest both Dodd. And then Quell gets uh, into a fight with the policeman as well. Freddie, and both of them are thrown in prison. And then the, there's a... I don't know how long this total single shot is, but it's about a good several minutes of no cuts where you just watch the frame is split in half and you have Freddie on one side and you have uh, Dodd on the other and they're yelling at each other. And it's, it's you know, a similar dynamic of processing. You have two people uh, with sort of this fire back and forth, this conversation and questioning back and forth. But in this case, they're yelling and Freddie... And Joaquin as Freddie is just kicking things, screaming, breaking everything. And I guess back to my original point where part of me kind of was like, oh, this is just an acting exercise where performers can sort of access this fundamental fire inside them. And then, but at the same time, it's a it takes a pretty remarkable set of performers and director to be able to set something up like that in such an effective way and have no cuts and just let two people just follow a scene through and whatever, like wherever it goes, whatever happens. And it feels like part of me is like, Joaquin probably did not exit that particular shoot without some bruises and scars because he is really busting himself up, Um, which, you know, maybe as far as a production set Uh, safety uh as far as production safety is concerned not a great thing but it's still a remarkable scene um and i i think really really shows the skill of all three involved like anderson and then joaquin and hoffman as well
1: very much agree yeah, that's a that's a great scene to talk about. Also, one that I'm going to add to our list is the uh, the closing. Well, not the the penultimate scene, I suppose. The final confrontation between uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Freddie Quell and uh, Lancaster Dodd, Philip Seymour Hoffman, after Freddie has uh, sort of seemingly abandoned this movement uh, and Lancaster Dodd altogether uh, in order to retrace his steps and uh try to see how um something that only exists to him as a memory has played out in reality which is a really interesting scene as well but yeah that final confrontation between them at the end of the film I think is also really fascinating so I would love to talk about all four of those so Sam I suppose uh a great place to start and probably the most iconic and most often referenced scene within this movie would be that processing scene so that's one I'm really looking forward to to get our teeth into what were our thoughts on the processing scene what are our thoughts on the process itself and how do we think these two actors brought that uh dynamic and that process to life with the help of anderson's watchful eye yeah so this processing scene uh just for some context and some background this is uh freddie quell first sort of really having his uh his deep dive his first uh his first entry his first processing with uh Charismatic cult leader, uh, Lancaster Dodd, played by Hoffman. The two of them are sat at a table and they sort of like casually exchange questions. uh, Philip Seymour, or rather Philip Seymour Hoffman. Lancaster Dodd uh, guides him through a series of questions uh, pretty casually and then concludes the session. Uh, Freddie, in his excitement, though, at being heard uh, and feeling seen is really enthused and wants to continue. Uh, They press on with a more challenging series of questions with the instruction that, Uh, Quell is to answer with as little hesitation as possible, and while not blinking, uh, to create this sort of almost like hypnotic, immersive questionnaire experience. Uh, We learn a lot about Freddy. We learn a lot about his background. We learn a lot about his past. And uh, that all unfolds in a pretty reserved, uh, just two shot, uh, two actors, uh, just sort of at full steam, bringing these uh, characters in this scenario to life. Uh, with some interstitial cutaways that represent Freddy's memory as he's being processed. So, uh, Sam, you brought this one up in particular. What, uh, What was the real draw of this scene? Why was this one that really stuck with you, as it stuck with me?
3: I mean, I think this goes back to Christine's point of just watching two phenomenal actors really act and do an incredible job. But also, and I'm having a hard time remembering, is this when we learn a little bit about his like long lost love? Mm -hmm. So this scene, I had been kind of feeling this the whole movie, but this scene in particular really had me trying to figure out how old Freddie is because like Joaquin Phoenix, I can't remember how old he actually was when he was filming that, but I thought like he was pretty old in this and they kept calling him boy. And then they had, um, she was like 16 years old and they were, um, talking about being in love. And I'm like, well, I don't, understand this is he actually supposed to be like an older adult is what's going on here so I think like I liked that it gave me more questions than answers Mm -hmm.
2: I think he probably yeah I think he is supposed to be older because at the end of the movie when he's he returns to Massachusetts talks to Doris's mom he's recognizing she he says he she was too young
0: I think it's interesting that we're talking about um, Bernie's age because this, you know, I think a lot of the themes reminded me of what um, Frank Herbert, author of Dune, talks about, of the idea of like, what is a human? What is a man? Um, Ron L. Hubbard and Frank Herbert were definitely writing in the same time period, you know, sci-fi stories, questioning human identity. I'm not too familiar with like how their kind of works or themes (laughs) overlap, but the idea of, you know, a lot of what Dodd says reminded me of the Bene Gesserit testing call of like, you know, a wolf will gnaw off its own arm to escape this pain, but a a human can rise above those animal instincts. So I think that was a really interesting tension to put in that, you know, Freddy is this man-boy who can't control his emotions. He is kind of like uh, a wild animal at times when Dodd is sort of on the other end of the spectrum. Not too much older, I don't think, but somebody who appears to be so controlled and so restrained um and thinks of himself as an elevated you know kind of human form while freddy is this animal but you know freddy is helpful to him and i think the the animal instincts are really attractive to Dodd. And sort of i think that's what kind of brings them into this orbit together and creates this very unusual friendship to say the least unconventional
1: yeah and as it relates to their dynamics especially in this scene i think is um is another part of the uh, actors acting uh, sort of uh, almost subtext of the movie, which I think is <clears throat> is not not unintentional. I think this is a uh, very much uh, an urged direction uh, on the part of Anderson. Uh, I know he isn't very keen on instructing actors, but just wants to write his script and have them bring it to life. But um, I think there's definitely some character choices or some characterization choices that are reminiscent of Hollywood films of that era. You have Freddie Quell, uh, as played by Phoenix, who is definitely revved up to 11. And as we said, sort of more animalistic, a good deal more raw, less controlled and more visceral. Sort of more along the lines of someone like uh, James Dean or uh, like an early Brando. By contrast to the more reserved, the more restrained and the more uh, controlled presence of Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lancaster Dodd. So I think that that's definitely something that is consciously at play in this movie and particularly in this scene. Uh, also really interesting to hear about some illuminations of, of Freddie's troubled past uh, and how that impacts the scene as they're going through processing. He has questions, uh, Dodd does for him, uh, about things like, uh, did you ever kill anyone? Did, were, did you ever have sex with someone inside your family? And so on. And we learn, as um, <clears throat> as author uh, and film critic Adam Naiman uh, says in a book called Paul Thomas Anderson masterworks, pretty interesting read. Uh, that quote, Freddy's compulsions also seemingly predate his combat experiences. He he has a gothic backstory involving incest that hangs over his behavior like a shroud. Uh, as several critics have pointed out, he possesses the existentially haunted qualities of a 40s noir hero, a hard-drinking cipher connected to nobody and potentially capable of anything. His forbidding affect remains intact for the duration of the film, but Anderson nevertheless collapses the distance between the character and the viewer through this use of point of view, which is, I think, one of the really interesting parts of that sequence. Uh, We are able to break away from the two of them having this processing exchange and conversation when Quell is sort of at his most emotionally fever-pitched. Dodd recognizes this and requests that he close his eyes and recall a memory. Uh, at this point, if you pay really close attention to the movie, all the sound of like the hum of the background of the ship drops out as we're immersed into a memory that Freddy comes over and uh, and reviews and attacks in processing uh, that the story of this uh, failed relationship and this lost love. So it's a pretty interesting directorial flares at work here, too.
2: I think also as far as Phoenix's performance. I think certainly there's probably, yeah, those connections to, as you said, uh, Dave, an early Brando, an early James Dean, and, like, also noir anti-heroes of that particular time. But I think that Phoenix kind of skirts or shirks off sort of the, like, sort of romanticization of that sort of depiction of masculinity. Like, I think... Joaquin Phoenix, the hunch, the sort of uh, his face that's like his gaunt face, there's nothing sexy about his performance at all. Whereas you look at like figures like, you know, young Marlon Brando and James Dean, and they sort of exuded this uh, sexiness and this form of masculinity. Whereas you can really see through Joaquin Phoenix as Freddie that, this guy is, yes, as you said, haunted and it's just eating away almost like at his physical presence um, and, and body. And, and it's sort of um, really kind of frightening. Like, yeah, like to me, kind of frightening.
1: <laughs> it's a very fair point. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, I guess by contrast to those references, a good deal more unvarnished and invulnerable uh, and in some ways.
3: And the way that he plays it, being so unpredictable and kind of rabid so often, really left me wondering, what is the truth in this scene? Because, you know, he answers, he changes his answers a few times. And um, the master, Lancaster Dodd, um, thinks that the second set of answers he gets where um freddie is saying yes to the i killed somebody yes to the relationship and my family he seems to think that that is the right answer but and it could be but it also could very well be uh freddie understanding that he wanted a different answer and on the unpredictability of it all he's like okay i'm gonna change it up i'm gonna say these things and you know he's in such a a vulnerable state you could almost imagine and and believe that that happens which is something that happened in the and continues to happen in Scientology
1: that's an interesting shadow of doubt to cast on that seed I always read his second series of answers as uh genuine because he's becoming more immersed and engaged in the experience but that's a really interesting takeaway
2: yeah that Sam that's a really great point because by the time you reach the end of the movie you're looking for a sense of character transformation out of Freddie, but really by the end, in many ways, he's, as Connor had said earlier, he's back where he began on the beach, hugging a sand mermaid and playing with her boobies, you know? So it's like how much, yeah, like sort of reflection and honesty is really getting, like is being illuminated through these sessions and is... Freddie, kind of this unreliable. He's not a narrator, but he's very much the vehicle through which we're understanding Lancaster Dodd and this and this whole world and the this community he finds himself in. Um, so yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Stuff.
0: You know, Christina, I'm so happy you're kind of bringing up these points because Dave, at the top of the episode, you asked, you know, we're going to talk about what we think the movie is about, and I guess kind of jumping to that now. I think Freddie is a great example of, I think for me, one of the themes is, can we change? Is change possible? We try to find meaning through many causes in our life, but is our emotional baggage from let's say the first 10, 15, 20 years of our life, can we ever move past that? Will we always end up as the same place that we were when we were in our twenties, when we're close to our forties or older, you know? So I think that's, I think Freddie is a really interesting character of like somebody trying desperately to change but maybe can't ever shake off the shroud of of his past um and i think that's really i think that's for me what makes him a really compelling character and the ending recontextualizing the this whole journey that he went on and made me want to go back and rewatch it.
3: is he trying to change
1: it depends who you ask amy adams seems at the end of the film to suggest that he is incapable of uh, achieving change and that he will remain in this sort of uh almost primal volatility forever i think by the end there is a a not insignificant change that occurs but uh we'll get to that at the the last scene of the movie before that though uh we get a lot of context in terms of uh freddie's background that connor what you were talking about earlier this sort of like opening series of scenes that bring us into where freddie is following his return to the states uh after being away at sea and uh engaged in the pacific theater for for seemingly a long time uh so those scenes really quickly like play out we see him sort of uh passing time with the other uh other uh navy men uh other seamen on the uh the island uh it seems to be a an island in hawaii i believe they're just sort of drinking uh wrestling in the sand uh creating sand sculptures of a busty woman and here we see freddie try to fit in he's uh sort of mounts this sand woman and uh starts simulating sex uh initially to the like guffaws of the surrounding uh navy men but ultimately they become a little perturbed and put off by it as he goes on for a bit too long and then he's seen masturbating alone into the sea (laughs) following this he um he returns to the States. He works in a department store taking photographs and um, meets a shop girl who, in a really dazzling sequence, uh, I love how the camera sort of waltzes through this department store with her. It's really alluring and really, really captivating. She uh, confronts him and and they have one of his concocted drinks that's made, I guess, partially of like, like film developing chemicals. <laughs> uh, they go on a date. Uh, or there's a promise of a date. And then we get a smash cut of her sitting disappointed at a table as he lies there, passed out drunk. <laughs> then we return to the department store where he gets into a fight with one of the customers and then storms out. Uh, it seems as though he's he's reaching for connection in each of these scenarios to an extent. Uh, also, it's a little scene after that where he uh, then is working on a cabbage farm. He meets an older man that uh, he seems to have a fondness for. He uh, resembles his father, he says. Uh, so he gives him some of another drink that he's concocted out of uh, whatever sort of uh, farming fluids he's gotten his hands on. Uh, this man gets very sick and uh, Freddy has to has to bail and uh, retreat on that failed drifter venture. So it seems as though each, in each of these vignettes, uh, he's really kind of making an effort to reach out to someone, but is unable to. What are our thoughts on that whole sequence that introduced us to Freddie Quell within, I guess, probably about the first 20 minutes of the film?
0: I really love the scene where he gets into the fight at the department store. Um, I just think the physical, like comedy, just the physicality of the, the lamp's too close. No, I need to hear the lamp and then pushing it back and the bald guy. I don't know how much that shows us about uh, that specific moment about this character. I guess that he just likes to kind of fuck with people, or I'm not quite sure, but at least the physical execution, I thought. Created like a weird kind of comedic, mo- not weird, but just like a comedic moment. Uh, the lamp too close, lamp too far. You know, it's like, oh, I need the good light. And the guy's like, I don't want that too close. And then I think he just likes to push people's buttons. Kind of seem to be my takeaway. Or he just is so socially kind of inept that uh, he either does things for his own pleasure or when he tries to help people, it's ultimately uh, hurting them. Because he does seem genuinely remorseful. Or, God, I don't even know when he nearly kills the cabbage man or almost or does kill him and he's like well he chose the drink so it's kind of like i think he shows some concern but is looking to pass the buck in that moment so i kind of saw like a lot of conflict in freddie but somebody ultimately who probably won't claim responsibility for his own actions
2: i think it's also interesting that like photography seems to be his passion or no not that he is yeah who knows if it's his passion but it's interesting that. Uh, as far as a character of all the activities that he pursues and the, and the initial job he pursues, it's portrait photography. And for a character that is so unpredictable and volatile and um, as Sam said earlier, just like a rabid energy, the fact that he in multiple scenes is, is a photographer he takes pride in the photograph he takes of Dodd. He clearly is a skilled photographer if he got a, you know, job at a department store. Photography is such a like a activity that requires focus and stillness and like, you know, like framing and figuring things out. Uh that there has to, maybe that's just a hint that there there there's elements of like this passion for observation and for like looking framed beauty and stuff like that. I just yeah, I guess that's kind of something that struck me as well as an aspect of his character that I hadn't really thought about. Like why, yeah, why photography?
0: Like an attempt at connecting through this like mechanical
2: lens. Yeah, that yeah, that's interesting. Yeah.
1: I think interesting too. We're we're treated to just before this uh scene takes place. Him being spoken to about how in their underdeveloped understanding of PTSD, they're speaking to these veterans returning home and saying that, you know, you can start a business, you can make something of yourself. And then we're seeing Freddie as this person that is uh, pretty clearly damaged, not only by that experience, but others, photographing people who uh, seemingly kind of haven't had that sort of trajectory of that life experience. He photographs a younger woman who's not been at war. Uh, He photographs three children that are happily smiling, a happy couple. Uh, I think that there's almost a distance that the camera creates, which is metaphorically representative of the distance he finds himself re-entering society after his after his uh, duty.
2: That Yeah, that's a great point. And then when he's talking to Rami Malek's character at the, uh, toward the later part in the movie, he's like, uh, I was aboard a ship that won 13 stars of honor uh, in war. What have you done? <laughs> it's like, you can't understand what I've been through. And yeah, yeah, the so like wartime trauma i've
1: seen and that then i suppose brings us to the big blowout uh between the two of them uh things have been progressing along throughout the movie after the processing scene and then that brings them to philadelphia uh where they meet laura dern's character uh laura dern a great little uh, additional treat in this movie and turns in a really good performance but while they're staying at her home The police serve a warrant for Dodd's arrest uh, because of unpaid dues on or or a collapsed contract on the uh, sailing vessel Aletheia that they've been riding around on. So he's pretty promptly arrested. Uh, Freddie freaks out and tries to step in in Dodd's defense and is also arrested. And that brings them into this jail cell scene, which, Christine, you pointed out. Uh, So did you want to walk us through some of that?
2: I, yeah, I mentioned that that was definitely, I thought, a really wonderfully, uh, a wonderful uh, extended shot and full scene that really shows the broad range of uh, performance of Hoffman and, and Phoenix. And as we've mentioned before, P.T. Anderson is the style or type of director that will really just keep the camera rolling and really what's uh, and to find out what kind of performance he can get and energy he can get out of his characters. I think also I I mentioned before kind of the split screen, and we have been talking about um, a lot of scenes that are basically just pitting two characters together. And I think there are elements of duality throughout the entire movie. We've got the interview scenes, and then this scene where the the bars of the cell kind of split the screen, and we see two uh, characters responding in different ways to. Uh, having just been arrested and put in prison um the book i cannot remember the t- actual title of the new book that dodd publishes but it's something like the two like the two split sided saber, saber what well, split saber yeah and so that that notion of um not only technically split screens but um yeah duality and and sort of Two competing energies is definitely on display in this in this scene, uh, replete with broken toilets and probably broken uh, backs and arms. Oh, which also reminds me, just before the long scene cuts, you see Joaquin Phoenix doing that thing where so his his hands are like t- or handcuffed behind his back, and then he sits on the bed, and then I believe the actual phil- uh, Joaquin Phoenix is trying to get his feet. Through his hands now unless you're like a contortionist that is like an impossible task to like get your feet through your does anyone know what I'm talking about like when your hands are high? yeah which I just ooh, that creeped me out a little bit too but anyhow very physical performance
0: I think as it'd be such an excellent contrast as Freddy wails in the cell and throws himself themselves- Breaks the toilet, which I guess I read was like, they were in it, was like a historic toilet that he just smashed. (laughs) And so I think that.
1: That's why it was one take because uh, they did accidentally smash a historic toilet. He went to kick it and then it was pretty much started breaking right away. So he just committed to it and then they paid for it after the
0: fact. And that scene ends, you know, with this rapid energy that we see from Joaquin and then Dodd is, you know, cutting him down verbally. And then, Phil Seymour Hoffman just takes a massive piss in the toilet next to him. And it doesn't cut. And like That's like the ultimate power play of like, of, it's just another example of like power dynamics at work of this dude just whipping it out and taking a big piss right in front of this guy. It's like, I you know, I, I don't care. I'm in control here. Like this is still, even though we're in prison behind bars, I'm still your master. You're just an animal raving in a cage.
2: A literal pissing. Yes. <laughs> um, but one thing that so it's like yeah these scenes create sort of pit the characters against one another or contrast them in many ways it feels like Freddy is also this extension of Dodd's own like being too because you see in this scene and in other scenes the volatile nature that's within Dodd as well when he is trying to um uh, sort of hypnotize or basically do this processing with these rich older people in this wealthy home and then a guy interrupts him and basically questions him about his methods and being like you're basically just a cult. Dodd gets really angry and really defensive and so you can see this anger inside of him and so it feels like Freddie is just this externalization of Dodd's own being in many ways. And like Dodd is trying, I feel like the elements of control are also at play here. Who can sort of suppress and control like feelings and rage and things like that.
1: Very hard to agree on that front. There are three instances where the charisma, the presentation of Lancaster Dodd that he's always putting out into the world, the image he's cultivated of himself, crack. And there are all instances where people are questioning his methods or his uh, how genuine he is. There's, uh, yeah, that confrontation where after a man has uh, sort of grilled him a little bit about uh, some of the causes, practices, he finally snaps and just shouts uh, something to the effect of, if you already know the answers to your questions, why do you ask pig fuck? Uh, in a pretty stirring, with a pretty stirring, no one, nobody, I, th- I heard this in another podcast recently and I very much agree that nobody shouted fuck like Philip Seymour Hoffman could may he rest in uh in fucking peace but uh, um also the next one yeah is in this jail cell scene where uh freddy is basically saying like you don't know what you're talking about you make this shit up your son hates you your family hates you you don't give me facts and that's finally when the facade of him being in a, a controlled and um and reserved master of, of this movement and specifically of Freddie breaks. And it just becomes a shouting match laden with cursing. And then there's another one later when, um, Laura Dern's character, having followed them to the Phoenix conference, uh, confronts him about, a, a pretty su- substantial change to, uh, the processing formatting questions. Uh, and he finally just snaps at her. What do you want Helen? So there's definitely something volatile underneath uh, Dodd's veneer of control and restraint that hearkens to Freddie. And I think that's part of what draws him to Freddie. He is someone who is trying to preach this sort of uh, ascension past, spiritual ascension beyond man's uh, animalistic form to its, inhe- quote, inherent state of perfect. But it's something that we see he himself is incapable of. And perhaps maybe that is part of what draws him to Freddie.
0: And probably why he wants to keep helping him. His family, you know, it's a scene where there's like a family dinner after he's been released from prison uh, or after his trial. And they say, you know, Rami Malik and all of them, like, Freddie, like, this is, he's going to take us you down. Know, we're going to go down with him. Like, he got to cut ties. And and Dodd is like, yeah, thank you for what you're saying. But if we can't help him, then let's point, basically. Um, which also feels very, like, Christian of an idea. of Like, we have to help, like, the lowest among us, the meek. And so I thought that was just interesting of like, if, if he can help Freddie, then he, maybe he can help his own inner demons, which um, Amy Adams, as I guess, is that his third wife? Mm-hmm. Second, definitely at least his second. Um, I think she's a really intersects here of like trying to bring out the best in Lancaster and finding real purpose in this movement. And I think her relationship with Freddie and interactions are, are really interesting and in how they intersect with Dodge.
1: Well, I mean, that brings us to uh, the scene that I selected and that being uh, sort of this final or penultimate confrontation between the two of them. Freddie has bailed on the cause and uh, on Dodd at one point uh, decides that he is going to uh, go back to Lowell, Massachusetts uh, and see about uh, this lost love of his um, that we, we spoke about a little bit before.
2: Wait, can we quickly talk about the scene before he goes back to Massachusetts?
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: Just, um, I think some things you were talking about, Connor, um, just made me think about, uh, or return back to something we talked about earlier, and that is like power dynamics. In many ways, it feels like Freddie is sort of the the community's, um, or what do they call themselves? Um, The council. um, There's some way they refer to themselves. Anyhow, whatever. In many ways, Freddie's used as almost an experiment, um, where there's there's observations, uh, these methodologies, and he's pushed to many extremes and, and observed while doing it in quite an exploit exploitive manner in many ways. Uh, and it's sort of like Freddie determines whether many of these methodologies can and methods can and practices can actually work. And so it feels like Dodd is in control. He is the charismatic leader. He's the one coming up with all of these frameworks and and theories and everything. But ultimately, the scene where they go out motorbiking is, I think, in many ways, the ultimate power play that Freddie is able to follow through on, where... The setup is that they're out in the middle of the desert and Dodd wants to play a game, pick a point on the horizon and get on this motorbike and drive as fast as you can towards it. And you see Dodd do it and he sees, he feels, he looks free. He's going, you know, 70 miles an hour or whatever, but then he return. you watch him return. And then it's Freddie's turn to get on the bike. And then he just goes and never comes back. And in that, I think was the ultimate, uh, Power move on Freddie's part, being like, "I did leave. I I did not return." And that's when he then goes to Lowell, Massachusetts, or wherever he's from. But I think that was a really pivotal scene because suddenly it's it's Freddie who employs a uh, yeah, like an act of of self actualization in many ways. At least escape, through escape and leaving.
1: Yeah, I very much agree. Uh, I think that is a huge turning point in this movie and one that is reflected uh, in a few people's write-ups of the movie. Uh, I have here, this is from Movies Up Close. It's uh, an article titled The Master Explained, which I think is a little bit... Of a reach, but uh, it does do a pretty good job of summarizing this part. Uh, and that would be, quote, uh, having thusly outgrown the cause, Freddy takes his recovery into his own hands. Uh, he's apparently concluded that he feels better upon confronting painful memories, as he did in simple processing, rather than blocking out emotions, as later techniques emphasized. So uh, after he departs from Pick a Point, uh, their game, Freddy decides that he's going back to Lowell, Massachusetts, but unfortunately, Freddie's taken too long. Doris is now married with children. Uh, Again, to quote the article, Freddie's reaction to this news, however, is heartening to watch. He's sad, of course, and his awkward mannerisms are as prominent as ever, but overall, he takes it in stride. He confirms with Doris' mother that Doris was upset when he left seven years ago, making sure that his memories of mutual romance weren't illusory, and professes in relatable sour grapes fashion that she was, quote, too young anyway, uh, his conclusion is admirable. She's happy and that's good. And at the end of the conversation with Doris's mother, he asks her how her husband is doing. The surprisingly well-related gesture uh, it seems that revisiting this key moment in his life has indeed helped him heal his wound somewhat and has afforded him some degree of calm. Which I think is a really interesting take on that scene as he returns uh, and speaks with Doris's mother. Uh, That then leading us into the final scene of the movie, the uh, the second to final scene of the movie, the confrontation uh, eventually between he and Dodd as he seeks him out in England. Some really interesting things play out here, uh, especially Dodd sort of suggesting that if Freddy leaves this time, he doesn't ever want to see him again, but he could also stay. And to this, uh, Freddy actually kind of quips, uh, and this again, him sort of, taking a little bit of agency, a little bit of ownership, and perhaps realizing that his journey with the cause has gotten him to where he can progress and change himself a bit, uh, says, maybe in the next life, this Adam, name it again. Although deeply moved by the possessive subtext of Dodd's final serenade, Freddie also sees, through his master's blustery, uh, implausible rhetoric of reincarnation once and for all, rephrasing the philosophy as a tender but definitive rebuke which makes it a pretty interesting scene. It seems as though the dynamic has collapsed a little bit. Also, Naaman here, digging into his bag of tricks, Uh, he, being Dodd, personalizes the song's melancholic desperation, but Freddy, long resigned to being receptive for the great man's charisma, resists to his surprise and Dodd's as well. The inference is that the reunion is a precursor to a parting. Freddie's emancipation may be provisional, but it opens up the possibility of independence while Dodd, for all his influence, appears isolated, a transference that throws the very question of mastery into doubt which makes it a really interesting scene. Uh, To me, I think the character of Freddie Quell does change. I think he reaches a point where the less manipulative elements of what basically amounts to uh, psychiatric hypnosis uh, has given him the means to confront his trauma and uh, connect with another person in a way that he's found unavailable through other people, especially as we see him struggle in the beginning of the film. Uh, And then finally, after coming to terms with the fact that he's gone as far with the cause as he can, uh, he has this final parting ways with uh, the charismatic leader and his good friend Lancaster Dodd and decides that he's going to take his fate as, to his own hands and now explore England on his own, which I think makes for a pretty interesting ending and a subtle but pretty powerful arc for Freddie Quell. However, we do have that final shot, which is him embracing this uh, this mermaid, while in real time he uh, is known to have taken on a... At least an encounter, a sexual encounter with a woman, which is the first that we see in the film. And it seems to be a consensual and appropriate one, unlike the ones in his past. So it seems as though that growth is there. But the, perhaps the final frame of the film suggests that that is an unresolved journey for him as of yet. So any thoughts on that dynamic, those, those, that pa- the pairing of that final shot with this seemingly cathartic expression of his growth?
0: Can we ever like outgrow our past trauma, our past experiences. I think that's what this movie left feeling of. Yeah. We do see him have a consensual sexual relationship for the first time, um, with a, a human. Um, but I think of like, we're flashing back to the very beginning of the movie. Cause it's like the same shot set up. Uh, but then realize that, you no, know, this is a new sandwoman <laughs> that he's made. And so I think it's for all the growth that I think, you know, he possibly has experienced, um, I think there's still a long way to go. I think just like with most people of where it just doesn't take one meaningful year of your life with someone to like change who you are, but there's still the end of the day, you'll still have lots of baggage to carry around, even if progress. And
2: I think the movie also resists linear narrative transformation. When the guy is questioning Dodd in the, parlor of the rich people's house, he's like, time, you can't achieve time travel. You've just made this up. And then ambiguous shots of is the beach scene, the beginning is at the end. It's not quite time travel, but through sort of this cinematic lens, I think it is Anderson playing with conceptions of time and then time's relationship to change and change within this, this character a conversation with the mother of Doris does reveal some uh, uh, changes in, in his sort of acceptance of like his relationship with this sort of fantasy he had of reuniting with, with Doris and for everything to be, to be fine.
1: So having covered a lot of ground here, having a a lost one, Sam uh, (laughs) had to step away for a little bit, uh, but Thanks so much to her for stepping in with her thoughts. Uh, I suppose we'll round out this episode with, uh, as I suggested at the top, trying to pin down, uh, what we think this movie is about. Uh, I think it's about a lot of things. I have trouble figuring out what it's about myself necessarily, or what the intended takeaway is, but I think it covers a lot of ground. So any thoughts on what we're supposed to, what we're supposed to intuit from this movie, what we're supposed to have learned, what this journey has meant. And, uh, is it uh, necessary that it uh, mean anything very uh, very transparently
2: i feel like what is this movie is about is a very hard <laughs> question <laughs> to impose on this film because i think from our discussion it's about a whole bunch of shit i guess maybe if i'm looking at my notes it's about masculinity and sort of uh, the sea of the mind, I will say. I think the sea plays a really important part of the movie. It's this sort of liminal space. Certainly as L. Ron Hubbard-esque character is fleeing from the authorities, the sea and maritime law probably helps him. But I think that there's a line in the movie that says, you're safe, you're at sea, is definitely applicable to this um, to this movie where uh, a lot of the shots of the beautiful blue ocean connect the, I don't know, the themes of of the sort of roiling ocean of the mind. Um, yeah. Masculinity in the ocean of the mind. It's what this movie is about.
0: For me, how can we arrive at, what, what does Dodd say, like the most perfect version of, of humanity or our most perfect like human self? Our inherent state of Perfect. our inherent state of perfect so i think you know like any cult religion belief system it's after truth and so where these things get fucked up is when certain folks dictate what is truth and what isn't truth versus like our own sense of internal truth and so i feel like the movie for me says that like no master can really determine like what we, our own internal truth is, is because we're all kind of our own people. And so maybe we find a sense of freedom through kind of not following a master. But at the end, we're a master to our own past, our own traumas, our own uh, preconceived notions. I think who just who we are built to be and what we have experienced. So it, for me, it feels like Freddie has kind of overthrown Kind of the sense of like needing to find a master through his own internal truth, but still is you know when he's having sex without you know the uh, the woman that he encounters, he's doing the processing scene, taking techniques from Dodd. At the end, he's still cuddling the sand, the naked sand woman, reflecting. You know the beginning of the movie. So, Dave, I I agree that he has changed, but I think the movie brings in the question: How? Are we capable of change? How deep does that go? Can we change or are we are is our own past our own master forever? Which is a pretty bleak, I think, way to interpret the movie, but one that I find kind of pretty satisfying.
1: I, I tend to agree with all of that. I think that it is a movie about uh, objective versus individual truth, uh definitely confronts our our Notions of masculinity, uh, as as much as I think, as I said before, this movie is about acting and um, sort of bringing to the fore things that are reminiscent of uh, performances and actors and their careers and their presentation, their acting techniques and styles that were, you know, sort of these acting titans, these masculine acting titans of the past. But uh, Christine, as you aptly point out, kind of deconstructs them at the same time. Uh, I think that uh, to piggyback on your your comment about the sea, as a uh, an interesting metaphor for the uh, the ever changing currents of the mind is 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 pretty great. Uh, and also, the opening shot of this movie is my favorite opening shot of anything. Just that deep, hyper saturated uh, sixty five millimeter shot of uh, the 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 wake being churned up behind a boat, and that I think is also a pivotal part of it. You know what? How how does how, how do we navigate our lives? Truth, desire, uh, whether that be for control and ascension or for belonging in the wake of our own pasts. Um, So there's a lot that goes into this movie uh, as far as metaphor and as far as what it's getting at. I think it's hyper almost meta aware uh, in terms of the acting stuff. And I think it's it's intentionally opaque. I think it really doesn't It's a movie that I I saw about a week after seeing it for the first time because, and this began a tradition of seeing P.T. Anderson movies twice for me in theaters uh, after There Will Be Blood. I did that uh, before this, but just because I adored it. But this one, I walked out kind of scratching my head thinking, I really love that. And I'm not sure why or what I'm supposed to think about it. I'm still not entirely sure. I think I've gotten closer in the past 10 years of watching this movie, but in a way, I'm really glad that it isn't uh so transparent that it isn't so uh on its face digestible and it it does invite rewatching and reward rewatching without you ever necessarily being able to wrestle and pin down exactly what its intention or message is. And I find that to be a really alluring thing uh within within a lot of films and particularly this one. So I was really glad to have revisited it uh again uh as is our theme it was uh, really exciting to hear connor and sam talk about it that being their first time seeing it and of course christine's notes upon revisiting uh this is the third pta movie that we've covered of his nine films i think it's the most that we've touched on any director thus far that's entirely my fault but uh we'll see we we might be bringing him up again at some point
2: just one quick thing you know johnny greenwood is always doing or like recent memory a lot of anderson movies but I didn't remember this score from watching it. And then listening back to it, I loved it so much. And there's a lot of it. Sometimes I'm like, is it like too much? But I, I like, there's a lot of, um, clarinet in it. So I really really liked it too. (laughs) But it's really, um, yeah, it was really beautiful. And the, also this, the way that, uh, Anderson blends Greenwood score and songs like 50 songs from the period that also give you kind of some insight into what scenes are supposed to mean like the final song in the film is a wonder like it's about changing partners while one's dancing and then missing the person that you were dancing with and I thought it was the perfect song to end on and so I thought the combination of of yeah, the songs that were chosen for the song for this film, and then Greenwood score work really, really well together.
1: Very well paired and composed, and a great curation of era-appropriate songs. I definitely agree that there's a lot of
0: subtext. I think this also works really well as a period piece. Where I don't know, like there will be blood. It's there will be blood. Like this is just a, a gritty, hard Western. Definitely has its own vibe. But this, if we're just thinking about like in the you know, making a period piece, I think. The Master is incredibly successful at recreating the era from the music, as Christine just brought up, the costuming, the actual way that it was shot and filmed, and um, kind of capturing that post-war GIs returning home and trying to rebuild a life. I thought as a period piece, um, this film was also incredibly effective of drawing you in uh, to a time period that I don't really have any nostalgia for, uh, but really bringing me into that world uh, in an incredibly compelling way.
1: Yeah, agreed. Very, uh, very uh, transportative, I suppose. But of course, uh, before departing, we want to thank the Movie John Podcast Network, who is uh, has been a great host to us and a host to a suite of other really awesome podcasts that you can check out. All of them Philly based, and uh, of course, you can reach us on our socials. That would be uh, butter with that at. Instagram, Butter With That on Facebook, Butter With That One on Twitter. And, uh, of course, send us an email. We haven't gotten one in a while at Podcast at gmail.com. I know Connor is still tossing and turning a bed waiting for uh, us to receive some some correspondence. Please let us know what you think of the show. But I suppose until then, uh, we'll see you folks later. And, uh, as always, have a good whatever. Pig fuck